Section 2 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 2 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 18 Chartism and Young Ireland, Part 2. Before the death of O'Connell, the formal secession of the Young Ireland Party from the regular repealers had taken place. It arose out of an attempt of O'Connell to force upon the whole body a declaration condemning the use of physical force, of the sword, as it was grandiosely called, in any patriotic movement whatever. It was in itself a sign of O'Connell's failing powers and judgment that he expected to get a body of men about the age of Maur to make a formal declaration against the weapon of Leonidas and Miltiades, and all the other heroes dear to classically instructed youth. Maur declaimed against the idea in a burst of poetic rhetoric, which made his followers believe that a new Grattan of bolder style was coming up to recall the manhood of Ireland that had been banished by the agitation of O'Connell and the priests. I am not one of those tame moralists, the young orator exclaimed, who say that liberty is not worth one drop of blood. Against this miserable maxim, the noblest virtue that has saved and sanctified humanity appears in judgment. From the blue waters of the Bay of Salamis, from the valley over which the sun stood still and lit the Israelite to victory, from the cathedral in which the sword of Poland has been sheathed in the shroud of Kosciusko, from the convent of St. Isidore, where the fiery hand that rent the ensign of St. George upon the plains of Ulster has mouldered into dust, from the sands of the desert where the wild genius of the Algerine so long has scared the eagle of the Pyrenees, from the ducal palace in this kingdom where the memory of the gallant and seditious Geraldine enhances more than royal favour the splendour of his race, from the solitary grave within this mute city which a dying bequest has left without an epitaph, oh, from every spot where heroism has had a sacrifice or a triumph, a voice breaks in upon the cringing crowd that cherishes this maxim, crying, away with it, away with it. The reader will probably think that a generation of young men might have enjoyed as much as they could get of this sparkling declamation without much harm being done thereby to the cause of order. Only a crowd of well-educated young Irishmen, fresh from college and with the teaching of their country's history which the nation was pouring out weekly in prose and poetry, could possibly have understood all its historical allusions no harm indeed would have come of this graceful and poetic movement were it not for events which the young ireland party had no share in bringing about the continental revolutions of the year eighteen forty eight suddenly converted the movement from a literary and poetical organization into a rebellious conspiracy the fever of that wild epoch spread itself at once over ireland when crowns were going down everywhere what wonder if Hellenic young Irelandism believed that the moment had come when the crown of the Saxon invader too was destined to fall? The French Revolution and the flight of Louis Philippe set Ireland in a rapture of hope and rebellious joy. Lamartine became the hero of the hour. A copy of his showy, superficial Girondiste was in the hand of every true young Irelander. Maurer was at once declared to be the Verniot of the Irish Revolution. Smith O'Brien was called upon to become its Lafayette. 
a deputation of young irelanders with o'brien and mauer at their head waited upon lamartine and were received by him with a cool good sense which made englishmen greatly respect his judgment and prudence but which much disconcerted the hopes of the young irelanders many of these latter appear to have taken in their most literal sense some words of lamartine's about the sympathy of the new french republic with the struggles of oppressed nationalities and to have fancied that the republic would seriously consider the propriety of going to war with england at the request of a few young men from ireland headed by a country gentleman and member of parliament in the meantime a fresh and a stronger influence than that of o'brien or mauer had arisen in young irelandism young ireland itself now split into two sections one for immediate action the other for caution and delay the party of action acknowledged the leadership of john mitchell the organ of this section was the newspaper started by mitchell in opposition to the nation which had grown too slow for him the new journal was called the united irishman and in a short time it had completely distanced the nation in popularity and in circulation the deliberate policy of the united irishman was to force the hand first of the government and then of the irish people mitchell had made up his mind so to rouse the passion of the people as to compel the government to take steps for the prevention of rebellion by the arrest of some of the leaders then mitchell calculated upon the populace rising to defend or rescue their heroes and then the game would be afoot ireland would be entered in rebellion and the rest would be for fate to decide this looks now a very wild and hopeless scheme so of course it proved itself to be but it did not appear so hopeless at the time even to cool heads at least it may be called the only scheme which had the slightest chance of success we do not say of success in establishing the independence of ireland which mitchell sought for but in setting a genuine rebellion afoot mitchell was the one formidable man among the rebels of forty eight he was the one man who distinctly knew what he wanted and was prepared to run any risk to get it he was cast in the very mould of the genuine revolutionist and under different circumstances might have played a formidable part he came from the northern part of the island and was a protestant dissenter it is a fact worthy of note that all the really formidable rebels ireland has produced in modern time from wolfe tone to mitchell have been protestants mitchell was a man of great literary talent indeed a man of something like genius he wrote a clear bold incisive prose keen in its scorn and satire going directly to the heart of its purpose as mere prose some of it is worth reading even to-day for its cutting force and pitiless irony mitchell issued in his paper week after week a challenge to the government to prosecute him he poured out the most fiery sedition and used every incentive that words could supply to rouse a hot-headed people to arms or an impatient government to some act of severe repression mitchell was quite ready to make a sacrifice of himself if it were necessary it is possible enough that he had persuaded himself into the belief that a rising in ireland against the government might be successful but there is good reason to think that he would have been quite satisfied if he could have stirred up by any process a genuine and sanguinary insurrection which would have read well in the papers and redeemed the irish nationalists from what he considered the disgrace 
of never having shown that they knew how to die for their cause he kept on urging the people to prepare for warlike effort and every week's united irishmen contained long descriptions of how to make pikes and how to use them how to cast bullets how to make the streets as dangerous for the hoofs of cavalry horses as bruce made the field of bannockburn some of the recipes if we may call them so were of a peculiarly ferocious kind the use of vitriol was recommended among other destructive agencies a feeling of detestation was not unnaturally aroused against mitchell even in the minds of many who sympathized with his general opinions and those whom we may call the girondists of the party somewhat shrank from him and would gladly have been rid of him it is true that the most ferocious of these vitriolic articles were not written by him nor did he know of the famous recommendation about the throwing of vitriol until it appeared in print he was however justly and properly as well as technically responsible for all that appeared in a paper started with such a purpose as that of the united irishman and it is not even certain that he would have disapproved of the vitriol throwing recommendation if he had known of it in time he never disavowed it nor took any pains to show that it was not his own the fact that he was not its author is therefore only mentioned here as a matter more or less interesting and not at all as any excuse for mitchell's general style of newspaper war-making he was a fanatic clever and fearless he would neither have asked quarter nor given it and undoubtedly if ireland had had many men of his desperate resolve she would have been plunged into a bloody an obstinate and a disastrous contest against the strength of the british government in the meantime that government had to do something the lord lieutenant could not go on for ever allowing a newspaper to scream out appeals to rebellion and to publish every week minute descriptions of the easiest and quickest way of killing off english soldiers the existing laws were not strong enough to deal with mitchell and to suppress his paper it would have been of little account to proceed against him under the ordinary laws which condemned seditious speaking or writing prosecutions were in fact set on foot against o'brien and mauer and mitchell himself for ordinary offences of that kind but the accused men got bail and went on meantime speaking and writing as before and when the cases came to be tried by a jury the government failed to obtain a conviction the government therefore brought in a bill for the better security of the crown and government making all written incitement to insurrection or resistance to the law felony punishable with transportation this measure was passed rapidly through all its stages it enabled the government to suppress newspapers like the united irishman and to keep in prison without bail while awaiting trial any one charged with an offence under the new act mitchell soon gave the authorities an opportunity of testing the efficacy of the act in his person he repeated his incitements to insurrection was arrested and thrown into prison the climax of the excitement in ireland was reached when mitchell's trial came on there can be little doubt that he was filled with a strong hope that his followers would attempt to rescue him he wrote from his cell that he could hear around the walls of his prison every night the tramp of hundreds of sympathizers felons in heart and soul the government for their part were in full expectation that some sort of rising would take place for the time smith o'brien mauer and the other young irelanders were thrown into the shade and the eyes of the whole country were turned upon mitchell's cell had there been another mitchell out of doors 
as fearless and reckless as the mitchell in the prison a sanguinary outbreak would probably have taken place but the leaders of the movement outside were by no means clear in their own minds as to the course they ought to pursue many of them were well satisfied of the hopelessness and folly of any rebellious movement and nearly all were quite aware that in any case the country just then was wholly unprepared for anything of the kind not a few had a shrewd suspicion that the movement never had taken any real hold on the heart of the country some were jealous of mitchell's sudden popularity and in their secret hearts were disposed to curse him for the trouble he had brought on them but they could not attempt to give open utterance to such sentiment mitchell's boldness and resolve had placed him at a sad disadvantage he had that superiority of influence over them that downright determination always gives a man over colleagues who do not quite know what they would have one thing however they could do and that they did they discouraged any idea of an attempt to rescue mitchell his trial came on he was found guilty he made a short but powerful and impassioned speech from the dock he was sentenced to fourteen years transportation he was hurried under an escort of cavalry through the streets of dublin put on board a ship of war and in a few hours was on his way to bermuda dublin remained perfectly quiet the country outside hardly knew what was happening until mitchell was well on his way and far-seeing persons smiled to themselves and said the danger was all over so indeed it proved to be the remainder of the proceedings partook rather of the nature of burlesque the young ireland leaders became more demonstrative than ever the nation newspaper now went in openly for rebellion but rebellion at some unnamed time and when ireland should be ready to meet the saxon it seemed to be assumed that the saxon with a characteristic love of fair play would let his foes make all the preparations they pleased without any interference and that when they announced themselves ready then but not until then would he come forth to fight with them smith o'brien went about the country holding reviews of the confederates as the young irelanders call themselves the government however showed a contempt for the rules of fair play suspended the habeas corpus act in ireland and issued warrants for the arrest of smith o'brien and mower and other confederate leaders the young irelanders received the news of this unchivalric proceeding with an outburst of anger and surprise which was evidently genuine they had clearly made up their minds that they were to go on playing at preparation for rebellion as long as they liked to keep up the game they were completely puzzled by the new condition of things it was not very clear what leonidas or verniot would have done under such circumstances it was certain that if they were all arrested the country would not stir hand or foot on their behalf some of the principal leaders therefore smith o'brien mower dillon and others left dublin and went down into the country it is not certain even yet whether they had any clear purpose of rebellion at first it seems probable that they thought of evading arrest for a while and trying meantime if the country was ready to follow them into an armed movement they held a series of gatherings which might be described as meetings of agitators or marshallings of rebels according as one was pleased to interpret their purpose but this sort of thing very soon drifted into rebellion the principal body of the followers of smith o'brien came into collision with the police at a place called ballingary in tipperary they attacked a small force of police who took refuge in the cottage of a poor widow named cormac the police held the house as a besieged fort and the rebels attacked them from the famous cabbage garden outside 
the police fired a few volleys the rebels fired with what wretched muskets and rifles they possessed but without harming a single policeman after a few of them had been killed or wounded it never was perfectly certain that any were actually killed the rebel army dispersed and the rebellion was all over in a few days after poor smith o'brien was taken quietly at the railway station in thurless tipperary he was calmly buying a ticket for limerick when he was recognized he made no resistance whatever and seemed to regard the whole mummery as at an end he accepted his fate with the composure of a gentleman and indeed in all the part which was left for him to play he bore himself with dignity it is but justice to an unfortunate gentleman to say that some reports which were rather ignobly set abroad about his having showed a lack of personal courage in the ballingary affray were as all will readily believe quite untrue some of the police deposed that during the fight if fight it could be called poor o'brien exposed his life with entire recklessness one policeman said he could have shot him easily at several periods of the little drama but he felt reluctant to be the slayer of the misguided descendant of the irish kings it afterwards appeared also that any little chance of carrying on any manner of rebellion was put a stop to by smith o'brien's own resolution that his rebels must not seize the private property of any one he insisted that his rebellion must pay its way and the funds were soon out the confederate leader woke from a dream when he saw his followers dispersing after the first volley or two from the police from that moment he behaved like a dignified gentleman equal to the fate he had brought upon him mauer and two of his companions were arrested a few days after as they were wandering hopelessly and aimlessly through the mountains of tipperary the prisoners were brought for trial before a special commission held at clamel in tipperary in the following september smith o'brien was the first put on trial and he was found guilty he said a few words with grave and dignified composure simply declaring that he had endeavoured to do his duty to his native country and that he was prepared to abide the consequences he was sentenced to death after the old form in cases of high treason to be hanged beheaded and quartered maur was afterwards found guilty great commiseration was felt for him his youth and his eloquence made all men and women pity him his father was a wealthy man who had had a respected career in parliament and there had seemed at one time to be a bright and happy life before young maur the short address in which maur vindicated his actions when called upon to show cause why sentence of death should not be passed upon him was full of manly and pathetic eloquence he had nothing he said to retract or to ask pardon for i am not here to crave with faltering lip the life i have consecrated to the independence of my country i offer to my country as some proof of the sincerity with which i have thought and spoken and struggled for her the life of a young heart the history of ireland explains my crime and justifies it even here where the shadows of death surround me and from which i see my early grave opening for me in no consecrated soil the hope which beckoned me forth on that perilous sea whereon i have been wrecked animates consoles enraptures me no i do not despair of my poor old country her peace her liberty her glory Mauro was sentenced to death with the same hideous formalities as those which had been observed in the case of smith o'brien no one however really believed for a moment that such a sentence was likely to be carried out in the reign of queen victoria the sentence of death was changed into one of transportation for life 
nor was even this carried out the convicts were all sent to australia and a few years after mitchell contrived to make his escape followed by maur the manner of escape was at least of doubtful credit to the prisoners for they were placed under parole and a very nice question was raised as to whether they had not broken their parole by the attempt to escape it was a nice question which in the case of men of very delicate sense of honour could one would think hardly have arisen at all the point in mitchell's case was that he actually went to the police court within whose jurisdiction he was formally and publicly announced to the magistrate that he withdrew his parole and invited the magistrate to arrest him then and there but the magistrate was unprepared for his coming and was quite thrown off his guard mitchell was armed and so was a friend who accompanied him and who had planned and carried out the escape they had horses waiting at the door and when they saw that the magistrate did not know what to do they left the court mounted the horses and rode away it was contended by mitchell and by his companion mr p j smith afterwards a distinguished member of parliament that they had fulfilled all the conditions required by the parole and had formally and honourably withdrawn it one is only surprised how men of honour could thus puzzle and deceive themselves the understood condition of a parole is that a man who intends to withdraw it shall place himself before his captors in exactly the same condition as he was when on his pledged word of honour they allowed him a comparative liberty it is evident that a prisoner would never be allowed to go at large on parole if he were to make use of his liberty to arrange all the conditions of an escape and when everything was ready take his captors by surprise tell them he was no longer bound by the conditions of the pledge and that they might keep him if they could this was the view taken by smith o'brien who declined to have anything to do with any plot for escape while he was on parole the advisers of the crown recommended that a conditional pardon should be given to the gallant and unfortunate gentleman who had behaved in so honourable a manner smith o'brien received a pardon on condition of his not returning to these islands but this condition was withdrawn after a while and he came back to ireland he died quietly in wales in eighteen sixty four mitchell settled for a while in richmond virginia and became an ardent advocate of slavery and an impassioned champion of the southern rebellion he returned to the north after the rebellion and more lately came to ireland where owing to some defect in the criminal law he could not be arrested his time of penal servitude having expired although he had not served it he was still a hero with a certain class of the people he was put up as a candidate for an irish county and elected he was not allowed to enter the house of commons however the election was declared void and a new writ was issued he was elected again and some turmoil was expected when suddenly mitchell who had long been in sinking health was withdrawn from the controversy by death he should have died before the later years of his life were only an anticlimax his attitude in the dock in eighteen forty eight had something of dignity and heroism in it and even the staunchest enemies of his cause admired him he had undoubtedly great literary ability and if he had never reappeared in politics the world would have thought that a really brilliant light had been prematurely extinguished mauer served in the army of the federal states when the war broke out and showed much of the soldier's spirit and capacity his end was premature and inglorious he fell from the deck of a steamer one night it was dark and there was a strong current running help came too late a false step a dark night and the muddy waters of the missouri 
closed the career that had opened with so much promise of brightness many of the conspicuous young irelanders rose to some distinction charles gavin duffy the editor of the nation who was twice put on his trial after the failure of the insurrection but whom the jury would not on either occasion convict became a member of the house of commons and afterwards emigrated to the colony of victoria he rose to be prime minister there and received knighthood and a pension thomas darcy mcgee another prominent rebel went to the united states and thence to canada where he rose to be a minister of the crown he was one of the most loyal supporters of the british connection his untimely death by the hand of an assassin was lamented in england as well as in the colony he had served so well some of the young irelanders remained in the united states and won repute others returned to england and of these not a few entered the house of commons and were respected there the follies of their youth quite forgotten by their colleagues even if not disavowed by themselves a remarkable illustration of the spirit of fairness that generally pervades the house of commons is found in the fact that every one there respected john martin who to the day of his death avowed himself in parliament and out of it a consistent and unrepentant opponent of british rule in ireland he was respected because of the purity of his character and the transparent sincerity of his purpose martin had been devoted to mitchell in his lifetime and he died a few days after mitchell's death the young ireland movement came and vanished like a shadow it never had any reality or substance in it it was a literary and poetic inspiration altogether it never took the slightest hold of the peasantry it hardly touched any men of mature years it was rather pretty playing at rebellion it was an imitation of the french revolution as the girondists imitated the patriots of greece and rome but it might perhaps have had a chance of doing memorable mischief if the policy of the one only man in the business who really was in earnest and was reckless had been carried out it is another illustration of the fact which o'connell's movement had exemplified before that in irish politics a climax cannot be repeated or recalled there is something fitful in all irish agitation the national emotion can be wrought up to a certain temperature and if at that boiling point nothing is done the heat suddenly goes out and no blowing of a cyclopean bellows can rekindle it the repeal agitation was brought up to this point when the meeting at clontarf was convened the dispersal of the meeting was the end of the whole agitation with the young ireland movement the trial of mitchell formed the climax after that a wise legislator would have known that there was nothing more to fear petion the revolutionary mayor of paris knew that when it rained his partisans could do nothing there were in eighteen forty eight observant irishmen who knew that after the mitchell climax had been reached the crowd would disperse not to be collected again for that time these two agitations the chartist and the young ireland constituted what may be called our tribute to the power of the insurrectionary spirit that was abroad over europe in eighteen forty eight in almost every other european state revolution raised its head fiercely and fought out its claims in the very capital under the eyes of bewildered royalty the whole of italy from the alps to the straits of messina and from venice to genoa was thrown into convulsion our italy once again shone o'er with civil swords there was insurrection in berlin and in vienna 
the emperor had to fly from the latter city as the pope had fled from rome in paris there came a red republican rising against a republic that strove not to be red and the rising was crushed by cavaignac with a terrible strenuousness that made some of the streets of paris literally to run with blood it was a grim foreshadowing of the commune of eighteen seventy one another remarkable foreshadowing of what was to come was seen in the fact that prince louis napoleon long in exile from france had been allowed to return to it and at the close of the year in the passion for law and order at any price born of the red republican excesses had been elected president of the french republic hungary was in arms spain was in convulsion even switzerland was not safe our contribution to this general commotion was to be found in the demonstration on kennington common and the abortive attempt at a rising near ballingari there could not possibly be a truer tribute to the solid strength of our system not for one moment was the political constitution of england seriously endangered not for one hour did the safety of our great communities require a call upon the soldiers instead of upon the police not one charge of cavalry was needed to put down the fiercest outburst of the rebellious spirit in england not one single execution took place the meaning of this is clear it is not that there were no grievances in our system calling for redress it is not that the existing institutions did not bear heavily down on many classes it is not that our political or social system was so conspicuously better than that of some european countries which were torn and ploughed up by revolution to imagine that we owed our freedom from revolution to our freedom from serious grievance would be to misread altogether the lessons offered to our statesmen by that eventful year we have done the work of whole generations of reformers in the interval between this time and that we have made peaceful reforms political industrial legal since then which if not to be had otherwise would have justified any appeal to revolution there however we touch upon the lesson of the time our political and constitutional system rendered an appeal to force unnecessary and superfluous no call to arms was needed to bring about any reform that the common judgment of the country might demand other peoples flew to arms because they were driven by despair because there was no way in their political constitution for the influence of public opinion to make itself felt because those who were in power held it by the force of bayonets and not of public agreement the results of the year were on the whole unfavourable to popular liberty the results of the year that followed were decidedly reactionary the time had not come in eighteen forty eight or eighteen forty nine for liberal principles to assert themselves their great deed to quote some of the words of our english poetess elizabeth barrett browning was too great we in this country were saved alike from the revolution and the reaction by the universal recognition of the fact among all who gave themselves time to think that public opinion being the ultimate ruling power was the only authority to which an appeal was needed and that in the end justice would be done all but the very wildest spirits could afford to wait and no revolutionary movement is really dangerous which is only the work of the wildest spirits end of section two